Hey, thanks for coming out tonight, guys. Um, uh, and Danny, thanks for uh, letting me kind of lead out in these next four weeks. I'm real excited about our time together. Our, um, I work with a great team of folks, and um, we sat down and kind of talked through how could we put together four weeks in a way that would maybe go in tandem with what Danny's been talking about on, on Sunday morning and feel really good about the direction uh, that we're going to be headed over the next four weeks. Now, tonight is uh, foundational. Tonight, it's kind of we're lay- laying a little bit of framework together that we're going to build on for the next three weeks. And uh, we're actually going to start with kind of some phrasing or some wording uh, that we use in, our, in the church. And do you ever, do you ever find that, that we use um, phrasing or terminology in the church that we don't use anyplace else? It's like we walk in the door and we have to kind of set down every other sort of vocabulary that we use in the marketplace or in our home. And I'm not just talking about language that we shouldn't use in general. I'm just talking about kind of our everyday language. We set that down and we pick up kind of a church language. And we put it on, and, and in our kind of church culture, we know what we're talking about. When you're sitting in your Sunday school class or small group or whenever someone preaches from the platform, um, you're able to connect with that language. But sometimes um, I think that disconnect between church language and everyday language develops maybe a bit of disconnect in our heart. And so we may talk about something when we're here on Sunday or when we're to study on Wednesday or in somebody's home on Tuesday, um, but when we're talking about it translating to the other six days of the week, or the other 23 hours in a day, however you want to translate it, it gets lost a little bit. And the word that we're, or the phrase that we're going to kind of like camp on tonight is one of my favorites, actually. Um, So it's been fun to kind of like think through it. And it's the idea that God works for our good, and he ultimately works for his glory. Okay, so of this phrase, what makes sense? What do we use? God working for our good, right? Like we understand what our good is. You use that anywhere. You use that at home with your kids. You use that um, with your roommates. You use that in the workplace. You use it wherever. The idea of something being good, of it being well approved. Um, and, And then the idea that God works ultimately for his glory. I think that that may be where the disconnect may happen a little bit. The idea that God works for his glory. What does that, what does that mean, glory, that we are trying to give glory to God. And why would we do that? Why would we kind of use this word, ascribe it to God, and not really use it in any other sphere of life? Really? What does it mean to give God glory? Um, I'm going to kind of build a case that will give us a definition instead of giving us a definition on the front end. Is that okay? You guys okay with that? Okay. So let's think back about creation. Let's think back about the way that God set everything into motion. Um, The scriptures tell us that there was nothing, and then God spoke. And as he spoke, things came into existence, right? Um, uh, Planets came into existence, earth happened, um, the waters happened. It talks about how he created light and day, and then he created um, things to to orbit around. And how does this even happen? There's light and darkness already, but then the, the, the sun and the moon, they get in there. So where did the light come? You know what I mean? Like all these things, we see creation happen. We see vegetation sprout. We see the skies and the water divided. We see land sprout forth. We see fish. We see, um, we see animals. We see people. And at the end of the day, what God says about all of this creation is that it is very good. Now, it's not just good because we look at it, or you and I would look at it and would just, if we were there at creation, and say, man, this, there was nothing. Now there's something. This is good. It's good because God declares it as good. Whenever God set everything into motion, he set it into motion in such a way that that things would work and function within relationships and that he has established his kingdom. This is literally that the perfect kingdom of God happened at creation. 
It's all happened. It's all established. It's all there. Everything's moving in perfect harmony. God even sets up these boundaries for man to live in. And he says, you can have all of this. Eat of the fruit of the trees. There's these two trees over here that I don't want you to touch. I don't want you to eat of those trees. So stay away from them. These are the boundaries. Everything else is good. Stay in these boundaries. Now, things are working perfectly. We can ask questions whenever we get to creation about where did it all come from, how long did it take, all those sorts of things. But there are also questions that develop when we look at creation, um, simply, uh, simply when we look at relationships. So God set things into motion. He set them into motion in a perfect way where everything worked in harmony. Now, why, why did he do this? Did he do it so things wouldn't fall apart? Did he do it so things would keep on running and there was a system that he had to have happen in place in order for things to work? Was there something bigger going on here? Does, when God set everything into motion and everything was working in per- perfection, we see God's character, we see God's nature, that things work as they ought and function as they should. And it's perfect. It's very good. It reflects who he, who he is. So when we look at the creation account, we see how everything's moving. We see the way that God put it into motion. Even just looking at creation should cause us to look at God and say, this is crazy that you've created this. This is unbelievable. Only you could do this, right? Flip open real quick to to Psalms chapter 8. And this is exactly the way that David writes. Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. And just kind of glancing through this real quick. In verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and, and the avenger. This is what he says, verse 3. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given dominion over the works of his hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the fields, all birds of the heaven, all fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you get to verse 3, it's like David's looking up at the sky and he's saying, how crazy is this? Like you created all this, you created the heavens, you created the stars, and you care about me? This is so much bigger than I am. There's so much more at play here than just me. I'm so, so small. And even when he talks about the things that are under man's control, that he talks about he's over the oxen and the the fields and the streams and all these sorts of things, fish in the sea, even that idea is that he is, man has been given control. It's been handed down from God that man didn't just achieve that on his own. There's this kind of humility, this submission that's happening here. So it's like we look at creation, we see this example from David, he's looking at creation and he's saying, this is awesome, only you God could do this and only you God could put me in the position that I'm in. Nobody else could do this, only you could do this. That's glory. And when we think about our lives, when we think about our everyday, this is where we're going to plant toward the end of our time together tonight. When we think about our lives, we think about the other 23 hours in our day, or we think about the other six days in our week, do we respond in the same way? God, only you could do this. God, only you could make things function the way that they do. Only you could hold my family together. Only you could give me favor with my boss. Only you could help me be a son or daughter that really serves my parents well. God, only you could do this. Only you could put me in a position like this. Are we giving God glory? Are we pointing to him as the one 
that enables us to do those things. Because that's, that's his intent for us. That's his desire for us, that we would give him glory, that we would show him off. It's like that we would be his display case. Just like when we look at creation and we say, God, only you could do this, that when, when, when we look at one another, when we, uh, those who aren't in relationship with Christ are far from God, when they look at us, that we would be like God's display case. That people would look at us and they would see us being a people that are constantly pointing back to him. Only God could do this. Only God could sustain this. And not in a pious way, not in a way that is, is, is false humility, but in a way that honestly and humbly recognizes that only God could work the way that he does in our lives. Let's look at um, Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we're going we're gonna to work from tonight. There are a lot of themes in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, there are a lot of directions that we could go with this. Um, I hope you'll track with me when, when we're moving the direction that we're moving tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Um, This is uh, one long uh, section. Originally in the Greek, those verses were all just one big kind of run-on sentence, right? So now we've taken this one long run-on sentence and turned it into five over the course of 12 verses. And if we're talking about church language, this passage is really chock full of verbiage that we use in the church or that we see in Scripture that doesn't really necessarily, we don't see it translate into other spheres of our life. But what does this passage say? When we talk about glory and we talk about what God has done in our lives, what does this say for us? How does this kind of prove the point that God is working in creation so that we would look at him and say, God, only you can do this? that God is working in our lives and that we would look in him and say, God, only you can do this. How does this passage point out that we are to be um, kind of a display piece for God, showing off who he is, his character, his nature, how he works? How does this passage point it out? So there are lots of verbs that are going on in this one short 12-verse section. Look at me just real quick, just kind of breeze down the passage with me. And um, When we look at some of the verbs that are happening here, in verse 3, there's bless. Verse 4, there's choose or chose. In verse 5, there's predestined. 5 is adopted. 6 is blessed again, redeemed. In verse 7, forgave. In verse 7, verse 8, lavished. Verse 9, he's making his will known. Verse 10, he's united. Verse 11, um, there's an inheritance. 
the, the, the full picture of what's happening in these 12 verses is a really expounded and kind of eloquent understanding of what the gospel is. This is the work that God has done through Jesus Christ, that he has taken us, a people that are born in separation from God, apart from him, right? We get a relationship that is messed up. We get an offense when we've offended somebody in our lives, and it creates distance. It creates um, kind of cold and separation. We understand what that's like, and we're born into the world with that kind of separation between us and God. And what Jesus does is he comes and he pulls us into the family of God. He writes this wrong. He makes this separation go away. The offense that we have had toward God, he takes that offense on himself. And he pays the punishment for it so that we could draw near to God the way that Paul writes it in this passage so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And so this passage by itself, when we talk about the fullness of God's glory on display, we see that supremely in Jesus. We see that in the gospel, that God's desire would not just to be cre- to, to create man, to create the world, to leave it kind of playing, for the fall to happen, for man to commit offense against God and sin enter into the world, and then for God to leave us on our own. But we see that even God's glory is displayed in the way that he reconciles us to himself, That we would say, God, only you can do this. Only you could put a plan into motion that would pull us back into relationship with you, that would make this offense and this separation go away. God, only you could do this. And that's the way the passage passage is structured. When we look at all of these verbs, um, there's, there's, I think, 11, 11 verbs that are listed in this passage. When we look at all of these verbs, all of them are the action of God. They are work that he has done. He is the initiator. He's the one that puts them into motion. And we are the benefactors. So look through these with me one more time. Verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us in Christ. He has predestined us before the foundation of the world. He has adopted us into the family through Christ Jesus. He has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus. He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ, through, through the work of Christ on the cross. He's forgiven us according to his grace. He's lavished on us. He's given us riches. He's made his will known to us. He's united us in Christ, in him. And in Jesus, we've been given an inheritance. God is working and God is doing all of these things, right? And so when we look down this list, We see God being the initiator. We see God being the one that puts things into motion. But all of the things that are listed here, they are good, good things. And they're they're all given to us through Christ Jesus. So we are the benefactors of all of them. We receive the blessings of God. We have been chosen, those of us that are in relationship with Jesus. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We're lavished with grace. His will is made known to us. We're reunited with God through Christ. That relationship is reconciled. We are given an inheritance through Jesus. We see God initiating and doing all of these things. If you look at all these verbs too, it's really cool because there is a preposition that goes along with each one of them. Each one of them, there's a preposition that hits. And so God is doing these things, but he's doing it in or through Jesus every single time when you see those verbs. So God is initiating, God is doing, he's doing it through Christ, and we are the benefactor of it. So the question would be, why would he do this? Why would God do all of these good things? 
Why would he bless us? Why would he forgive us? Why would he adopt us? Why would he, um, why would he re- redeem us? Why would he make his will known to us? Why would God do it? And I, I think that the answer is in this passage itself. So in this explanation of the gospel with each one of these verbs, um, Paul goes on and he says three times uh, two different things. One is because of um, according to the purpose of his will or something along those lines. He says it three times in verse 5 and verse 9 and in verse 11. So God is doing these things because he's got a plan. He has a plan. So for us today in 2014, when we are born, when my kids were born into this world and they were born with that relationship that has separated them from God, He has a plan for them to restore him to himself, to restore my my sons and my daughter, to restore them, to restore us in a relationship with himself. And Jesus is this plan. Jesus is the only way to be restored to God. And so when we see all of these things that are happening and we say, why would God do this? Because he has had a plan. The scriptures tell us that even before sin entered into the world, before the world was even formed, that God had a plan, that sin did not take him by surprise. He didn't desire for man to be separated from him, but he knew what was coming down the pike. And he knew that Jesus was the only answer. So he's got a plan. The second thing we see, and, and I love the way that Paul, uh, Paul phrases this, in verses 6 and 12 and 14, Paul says that he does these things to the praise of his glory. So he does these things, all of these verbs, these action words, he does these things through Christ. We are the people that benefit from it, but ultimately he does it in order that we would point praise back to God, that we would point praise to him that we would give him glory, that we would point him honor. Um, I think that especially when you look at the way that these verbs are laid out or just even the way that our hearts are kind of oriented, when we think about the good that we receive from God, a lot of times um, I think it's easy for our worth to be kind of elevated. Well, we get blessed. We are forgiven. We receive. And we think that the, uh, that because we're the receiving ones, that we're the object, we're the, the, the kind of like most important actor within this equation here. When in reality, God is the one who is acting. God is the one who is in control. God, through Jesus Christ, is the one who accomplishes those things. Now, that describes our value. That says that we have worth, because God acts like that toward us. Not that we have worth, and because we have worth, God chooses to do all of these things. God is the initiator. He is the one that forgives. And so even that posture for us, when we look at this and we see that he is the initiator and we are the benefactors, we are the ones that receive, our response should be to say not, man, I must be really good that God would give me these things, but that God, only you can do this. Only you could forgive me. Only you could restore me. Only you could sustain me. Only you could adopt me. Only you could show me the the direction that I should live my life and that we would point to him and give him glory. So why does he do it? Because he's got a plan. Why does he do it? Because his desire is that we would give him glory. I was talking about this kind of like idea with my my team uh, late in the week this past week. And I, I think that sometimes when we talk about this, 
It's easy to, God, easy to turn God into this kind of narcissistic, white-haired old man that just desires for things to be pointed toward him. Because we look at him, and I, I know that sounds horrible, but we look at him in human terms. If I told you that everything was always all about me, you would think that I was a narcissistic, crazy man, like that I wanted everything to be about me. But God, because he is the creator, because he is the sustainer, he is the one that holds everything together, there is no one else for him to point glory to. There is no one else for him to make your life, my life, about. It would be unjust. It would be wrong if God said, hey, I, I want you to praise yourself because I'm, 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 I'm giving you salvation. I want you to give yourself glory because you've earned it. You've done something for it. But God is saying, I am the initiator. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to act in this way to the praise of my glory because there is no one else that it can go to. No one. He's got a plan. He should receive glory. So we work through this passage and we see what Paul's saying here. We get this kind of concept of glory, a foundation laid for it. But what does that mean like going home tonight, right? And what does that mean when you walk into your office at 7.30 tomorrow morning? When we say that God has done these things, acted in this way, to redeem us. And we do have value because he has done that. Please don't hear me minimizing the way that he looks at us. But we see God doing these things, restoring, forgiving, adopting. Again, okay, you're following with me on these. So what does that mean tomorrow morning? If our lives, if we've been um, offered salvation through Jesus so that we could be a display case for God, that people would look at us and we would be able to say, only God can do this, only he can do this. How does that affect us tomorrow morning? How does that affect us when we are driving home tonight? When we're putting our kids to bed? When we're calling our parents to check on them? How does that affect day-to-day life? We're going to unpack some specific things over the course of the next three weeks that we see how we can reflect and display God's character in his nature, that we can point to his glory, point to his goodness, three specific things. But tonight, I I just want to kind of round out our time together with this one idea. That when we think about the fact that everything in our lives is an opportunity to point to God, to point to the work of Jesus Christ, this is truth for us. This isn't just vocabulary that we pick up on Sunday morning when we walk in and that we drop before we walk out the door. We don't wear our Sunday school hat or our worship hat when we're here, and then we wear our banker hat or our teacher hat or our mom hat or our grandmother hat the rest of the week. The truth is that that God does love us, his people, and God does desire a relationship with us, his people, and that he has acted in all of these ways for our good so that we could live in relationship with him, and that that truth affects 7.30 tomorrow morning, that we have an opportunity not just in the good things that we do, but in the way that we live to point to the person of God through the work of Jesus Christ? Are we, are we living in a way that says, I, there's no way that, you could put, that I could be in this position other than you. There's no way that I could be here apart from you, God, who holds everything together and sets everything in motion. Is there this humility that we're marked with that says, God, only you can do this. Whenever we Act, interact with people that we work with. 
and the way that we view our neighbor that literally lives next door to us, when we offer care and offer concern, is our motivation just benevolence and goodwill? Or is it the truth that God has acted in these ways toward us? That he has cared for us. He has shown concern for us. He has acted for our good. There is truth in the statement that all aspects of our lives are an opportunity to give glory to God. Every aspect of it. Um, As a husband, and as a father, and as a friend, and a son, and just a man... I think that I get caught up more in the ways that I don't point glory to God. And it almost makes me feel like I'm kind of disqualified from doing it in the first place. Can you guys relate to that? And so when I think about how do I make intentional steps to really kind of rapture or uh, capture and redeem whatever aspect of my life that I, I understand I've not been pointing glory to God with, I think about how I've just disqualified myself in other ways. When the truth is we have another breath after this one. And we have it because God gives it to us. And you're going to have another five minutes after this if God gives it to you. And you're going to have another five days. And we take one step at a time saying, how do I give this moment, this breath, this five minutes, this five days, how do I treat it in such a way that it's an opportunity to give God glory, to point to him, to say that he's the one that gives me the breath. He's the one that gives me the days. He's the one that gives me the family. He's the one that gives me the job. He's the one that gives me the opportunity to get an education. God is the one that's at work. He's not just at work in this passage the way that Paul's writing a letter to a people a long time ago. He's at work in your life today. God loves you. God has redeemed you. He's made that relationship right with himself through Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that impacts every single day. It's truth for us. It's truth for us tonight. Let's pray together, and then we're going to worship. Father, we thank you for this truth from your word. And um, God, I pray that your spirit would do what he does, that he would drive this home in our heart, that he would um, help us to see this truth. And, and even as we're, as we're living out in daily life, as we're, as we're leaving this place, as we're going home, as we're waking up tomorrow, as we're going to bed tomorrow night, as we interact with so many people and things and situations throughout the day, that we would just hear him whispering in the back of our minds, this is an opportunity to give you glory. This is an opportunity to live and breathe and move in such a way that shows our dependence on you and that glory should go no other place Honor should go no other place. Value should be given no other place but to you, our creator God, who's with us now. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you that we are a people that are redeemed, a people that are adopted, a people that are saved through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would respond with lives that show our dependence on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.